Choose Linux, episode 15, for August 8th, 2019. Welcome to the show that captures the excitement of discovering Linux. I'm Joe. I'm Drew. And I'm Mel. And here we are for episode 15. And um, we've got a very interesting distro hoppers coming up later on and a pretty handy tool. But let's start with OBS Studio, open broadcaster software. Now, this is something that pretty much all Twitch streamers use and a lot of people who stream video generally. And it's something that I had wanted to check out for a, a long time. And then, L, you said that you'd been playing with it. And so I was like, right, we have to talk about this then. I'm going to start streaming some Mega Drive games like I've been planning to for a long time. So how's your experience with it been? You know, I had this crazy idea that it was going to be a plug-and-play product. Like It just is so widely used that I thought, oh, this must be simple. You just download it, you pick a few buttons, and bam, you're live on Twitch. And I guess you could do that if you read the docs, maybe. I don't know. I, I'm of the Linux mindset that we just download it and we start pushing buttons and see what happens. And I have to say that I was completely overwhelmed at the amount of customization that you can do from the time that you get it started. I mean, you're looking at what your audio interfaces are going to be. Then you're having to look at your you know, video interfaces, which is normal. But then you're looking at, do you want to compress your audio? Do you want to add filters? What applications do you want to add to it? Did you guys kind of get that this is just way too much feeling when you started out? I didn't, actually. I kind of saw it like the Plasma desktop, that yes, it is massively configurable, and you can go in and change all those little things, but if you want to do something pretty basic with it, then it was just really intuitive to me, and I didn't have to look up any documentation at all. I felt much the same way as you, Joe. The options that are present, uh, yeah, there are a lot of them, and quite frankly, I, I found them mostly uh, self-explanatory, and I felt like I could, you know, just go crazy and start applying all these effects, but I could also just kind of use it by dropping in just one or two sources and hitting stream or record. So taking a step back, do you think it's because both of you come from like the audio background? You're used to going in and mixing things and, you know, adapting your environment to fit like what you want that final output to be? Or do you think that someone who perhaps doesn't have that background would just be like, okay, just a few button clicks and I'm good to go? I think you've hit the nail on the head there. Having some amount of experience with professional production definitely helps here in knowing what to do with something this big and this complicated. So, yeah, if you've never done any kind of production, uh, this may be a little intimidating at first. I don't know, really. I think it definitely did help a bit because I understand about um, selecting different audio sources, but that's not rocket science. I mean, I have come to the conclusion that the best thing to do is use an audio interface disable everything else, and then only that interface will show up in whatever it is you're using, whether that's Audacity or OBS or whatever. And so I did that by default. And otherwise, I don't know. I don't know anything about video. I'm a completely audio person. I'm not good at graphical anything, pretty much. So I don't know how much my experience helped. I suppose a bit, but I think that ultimately it is 
fairly straightforward if all you want to do is get one window with your Mega Drive emulator, uh, one little webcam thing, and start streaming to Twitch. Then that it took me about maybe 10 minutes to get that going. I think it's because I was, I guess, doing something a little bit more complicated. So I was streaming to Twitch, and I was using Discord to pull everybody in for the study group. Then I had another application window because somebody wanted to use Zoom and couldn't come in through Discord, so I had their feed as well. Then I had our like high-production camera because I wasn't going to use the camera from the website. We had our mic and audio box that we use for better sound. So there was a lot of interfaces going in, plus I had scenes for, you know, hey, everybody, we're about to stream. And then we had, luckily, the hey, everything is broken scene as well, (laughs) which I don't know um, if anybody got to check out the study group, but we used that one quite a few times because we ran into audio issues. Whenever we would have our presenter going from Discord, if any other application kind of jumped in, perhaps somebody in Zoom coughed, it would kill that audio for them. And so we were having to go back and reestablish connections. Finally, I just nixed Zoom completely and just told those folks, sorry, you're not going to be able to be included. And that kind of helped things out. So I do think I need to play with the audio options a little bit more to kind of clear that up. And I'd like to mention one thing about video. I am using this on a Fedora-based workstation, and Fedora is Wayland by default these days. Now, if you're using Wayland, it is kind of a pain to figure out how to get that going. And I actually never did quite get Wayland streaming working properly. So the only backend that's currently supported is X. But that's pretty easy in Fedora. You just log out and select a different session, you know, select the X session, right? Exactly right. And, of course, if you're on Ubuntu or Pop or any of the other distros that haven't made the switch over to Wayland yet, then there's nothing for you to have to worry about. One thing I really enjoyed is how many third-party applications, I'm not sure if that's the correct term to use, but how many other applications kind of already know that people are going to be using OBS and their documentation is on point, you know, picture by picture, or it's as simple as, hey, you know, with Discord, click this button, tell us what you're going to be integrated with, and you can move on with your day. So even though it's open source software, it's very Linux friendly, it's pretty much friendly with any OS or application that you want to use. Yeah, I think that almost all of the users of this are using Windows, right? It's not commonly used on Linux. I did notice when working through Twitch that there are quite a few others like OBS Stream that are Windows-based applications that use kind of OBS for that background. So even those that aren't using OBS straightforward are using something that is OBS-based. I did run into one weird problem with it. And so I've got my Mega Drive emulator up, which was RetroArch. And I opened up Sonic 2 that I was streaming. And it showed up in OBS with the colors inverted. And I didn't know what was going on. But then I just went to the source that I'd set up and um, clicked on the settings for it. And sure enough, there was a little checkbox that said uh, swap red and blue or whatever. did that suddenly perfect. And whenever I ran into little problems like that, like when I resized my window of the the emulator and it went a bit funky in OBS, it just all seemed really logical to me that you just kind of drag that around and drag that around and then suddenly, yeah, that's all set up perfectly. And um, Drew, you uh, watched my stream for a little bit and um, it was a little bit funky at first, but once I fixed it, it was 
pretty all right, wasn't it? It was great. Honestly, the video and audio quality is top notch. Like it felt like a local video, not a stream. I was really impressed with how good it looked. But you know, if I have one criticism for the system as a whole, it's that I do wish that plugin installation was easier because there is a large ecosystem of plugins available for OBS, but installing them is not at all obvious. Uh, I had initially installed as a flat pack and I could not find the folder to drop the plugins into. I did eventually find it in home slash dot var, but that was not very obvious, and the OBS documentation doesn't really help there either. I was quite surprised that you need a plugin to make OBS output as a kind of fake camera, so into something like Zoom, for example, if you wanted to set up a screen share or whatever and make something a bit fancy to uh, output as a webcam. I thought that would be built into it and was slightly disappointed and did go kind of looking into the plugins but thought... Mm, that all looks a bit scary. I don't want to break things. I did check out the recording function of it, though, and that was pretty cool. It did default to FLV, which is a very strange default, but I was able to change that very easily. And again, it just created a really great quality video. So uh, as a kind of backup for your stream as well, or if you just wanted to do some offline stuff, then it could be really handy. But I think it is what a lot of people use to make their YouTube videos of the various reviews of distros and tutorials and everything. But I just heard so much about this, and I'm sure that Chris and Wes will listen to this and just laugh at us because they've been using OBS for years. But for me, I just, I've never been a video person, and I'd always kind of assumed that it would be more complicated than this. And I suppose, yeah, what you talked about, you went for something more ambitious, whereas my goal was just to do something really straightforward, What something that should be straightforward in my mind and actually was just really, really easy. I can definitely say this is a tool that I'm going to keep using. And I mean, to be fair, I had maybe a week and a half to play around with it before I decided, let's go live with, you know, 200 of my closest friends. So I did it to myself. What I was really impressed with was the setup of it. Because as soon as you open it, it asks you, right, what do you want to do with this? Do you want to stream to YouTube? Do you want to stream to Twitch? Or do you want to do just a whole bunch of other stuff? And so I click Twitch. And then it says, right, you need to put your Twitch key in here. I'm like, what's that? Oh, well, there's a handy link here, which then takes you to Twitch. And okay, sign up for that. And then Twitch kind of just took me to the homepage or whatever. And so I went back to OBS, clicked the link again, and then Sure enough, right there, this big, long alphanumeric key, just copy-paste that into uh, OBS. And then that was it. That was all that was required to start streaming. You can see that it has been really streamlined for the streaming services, if you pardon the pun. I think a good hint for people if they haven't used OBS before is before you open the application, have all of your peripherals plugged in. Have your mic, have your extra monitors, everything that you're going to use. That way that setup wizard can just kind of lead you through and already have those there as drop down options for you. Well, I think I'm going to keep using OBS because I just can't think of anything else that would be required to do this streaming of um, what I want to do at least, which is... Um, just old school emulated games. I don't know how well I'll stick with it. It's just something I've been meaning to do. So no promises that I'm going to be doing it regularly and you know creating a following and all that, but it's, it seems like a good fun. But while we're on the topic of media creation, kind of at the other end of the spectrum, 
you've been having some problems with Audacity L. And so Drew suggested to you a tool called Sound Recorder, which is a GNOME app, which it turns out is just so much simpler than Audacity if all you want to do is just record a flack of yourself. You know, you guys have been holding out on me when it comes to this because I, you know, sometimes invite friends to record with me and everything. And I have to sit through and talk to them about how to set up Audacity and, you know, hey, let's go to mono instead of stereo and so many other things that honestly, it's overkill for them because they're not going to be doing any of the editing. Whenever Drew recommended Sound Recorder and he tells me, okay, just click the record button, you're done. I'm like, where has this been all my life? Yeah, I don't know. The thing is, the reason that I always recommend Audacity is because it is cross-platform. You can run it on all of the three major operating systems. It's going to be pretty much on every Linux distro. And of course, it's on Windows and Mac. And it even supports some old versions of macOS and stuff. So it's just like a standard tool. But maybe for Linux, when I'm doing interviews with people, because I always try and get a local recording if possible, as well as the backup recording, maybe I should just start recommending this, especially if anyone's using GNOME. Yeah, it's honestly, it's a great tool that I have used quite successfully on a number of occasions where maybe Audacity is having trouble connecting to the right source or I'm having some other issue or I just don't feel like installing Audacity that day. It just grabs the audio from your default Pulse audio device and uses that. No muss, no fuss. There's really not much else that you can tweak on it. So for somebody who just needs a big record button, this is a great choice. So let's move on to distro hoppers then. And last time, the random distribution button on DistroWatch gave us endless OS, which is something I had tried out before, but not for very long. And this is a bit of an odd one because it doesn't use kind of standard package management. It's it's not like Ubuntu or Fedora. Yeah, so Endless OS uses something called OS Tree, which is fundamentally different from the way that package management works on other distributions like Ubuntu or Fedora or any of the other big ones that have a more standard desktop. What OS Tree does is it generates a base image that you boot into, and then updates and package installations will change that base image. And typically, there's no ability to write to the root file system. Which means that if you want to install anything on this, then you have to use Flatpaks to do it, which we'll get back to in a bit. But let's talk about our first impressions of it. My first impression of it was downloading the ISO. Uh, there was only a torrent available, which I'd remembered from last time. And I, okay, that's fine. I'm, that's how I do my downloading, because it's got the hash checking built in. And... Uh, you know, that's fine. And so I started downloading the full uh, version of it and then realized, hang on, this is 17 gigabytes. And, you know, it was going pretty fast. It was a well-seeded torrent, no problem. But then it dawned on me, the biggest flash drive I have is 16 gigabytes and this is just not going to fit. I had the same exact problem. I ended up having to go back to the basic version just because there was no way to install it. You know, I always end up going with the basic version to begin with anyways, because I kind of want to see what the developers or, you know, the distro maintainers think is the base that I need to be able to run their distribution. Like, I can always add things later. So, I don't know, my suggestion would be always go with the base. The next thing I found was that I couldn't install it to a partition. I had to give it the whole disk 
which thankfully I've got this laptop that's basically for this job. Um, I do generally keep a Ubuntu partition on there just, you know, for various tasks that I want to do with it. So I had to blow that away and just give it the whole disk. So that was a bit annoying. Um, I can kind of see why they do it because of this OS tree thing, but um, it would be nice if they could add partition support. I'm not even sure that it's about the OS tree. I think it's actually just for simplicity of the installer. But did you happen to notice that if you install Endless OS from within Windows, that it does give you the option to dual boot? Well, I didn't have Windows on this machine, so I didn't experience that. I mean, I did notice that whenever I went to go download it, you know, there was an .exe file to download it for Windows, but only the tar for Linux. So I kind of clicked through to see what it was all about, and it basically said, yeah, if you have a Windows computer, you don't actually have to remove it. You can run it together and... I don't know, maybe they're more focused on trying to bring Windows users to Linux. I'm not sure what that's about, but it's an option. Well, speaking of, I had been going through their website and I noticed that Linux is not really mentioned at all on the website. They do say that it's based on Debian, kind of, but that's about the only reference I could find to this being a Linux-based distribution. Yeah, it's not a distribution, right? It's an operating system. One of the things, before we go too far down that rabbit hole, I noticed when I was going through the website, similar to you, Drew, was the whole idea that they're kind of selling computers that run the OS as well, and not just kind of advertising themselves as that Linux distribution, but it's, hey, we are an operating system, and we've got these computers that are built to run this operating system But if you want to use it on yourself, here's a little bit of docs. But the focus seems to be on selling those computers. Yeah, it feels like they have a business model. Whether that is going to be successful or not, time will tell. But it's it's not like a community project. It feels like a company is making this open source operating system in order to sell hardware and be a viable business. I can see what you're talking about with the business model. Um, it To me, it seems like they're more focused on open sourcing their community than the product itself. If you go and you look on the website, especially in their community section, you'll see that they have a business model around the open source community. They have their Orange League, which is community members who've made a significant level of contribution. So that might not just be developers. That's also people like who are writing their documentation, who are going out there and spreading the word. And inside of this Orange League, they have their ambassadors, which are more of what we would think of as like developer evangelists that are going out there and spreading it. So they really have developed a business model around the community, which I think is actually missing from a lot of Linux distributions. With all that being said, though, guys, I know that we start almost every single distro hop segment with, well, L, I see you had some issues, <laughs> but not this time. <laughs> this time, I'm in love. This is what I thought an operating system was supposed to be like. When people tell me about how they use Windows, and it's just simple, and you go and you use it. Mind you, not my Linux friends, but my Windows friends say this. This is what I thought it was supposed to be. Like, I just pop up, there's some pictures, I click on what I want to use, it comes up, and it's simple and fair to use. Yeah, you know, the first thing that I noticed with this is that it has the best Plymouth theme I have ever seen in my life. And for those who don't know, Plymouth is the boot splash. It is so slick. Yeah, it's it's got the little infinity symbol coming in from the sides, and it just, it is so pretty. And to that note, 
I would say that this is the prettiest gnome retrofit that I've ever seen, too. It is almost on par with how good Deep In looks. That said, I'm not a big fan of the icon theme. I just never really liked that Finza style. Well, I'm not a very visual person, so as long as it's not horrendous, I'm fine, and this was just fine as far as I'm concerned. But in terms of the actual usability of it, it just feels a bit limited to me, a bit too much like a tablet OS almost. And um, I, I was trying it on a touchscreen device, and it was pretty touch-friendly, generally. There were a few little things like closing windows that were a bit fiddly, and you needed the mouse for that. But otherwise, it was fairly touch-friendly. For example, single-click on the icons opened them. Um, and so I, I can see what you're getting at, L, but it's just too simple for me. I will agree. If you're a power user and you're somebody who, you know, distro hops and you live your life in the command line, all right, maybe this isn't for you. But if you are that person and you want to get your kid started with Linux or you want to get your parent transferred over to Linux, this is perfect. This is exactly what they need. Most people who are not developers or not in the tech industry are just application-based anyways. So this is a great way to kind of transfer them into the Linux world without that much fight to it. Yeah, honestly... While I say it's a GNOME retrofit, I think that the interface shares more with Chrome OS in terms of design than it does with GNOME. So while it's based on GNOME technologies, it really, really does feel like that sort of Chrome, Android mishmash that you get on Chromebooks. I think it's really interesting that you compared it to Chrome OS because after I really got to using it, that's exactly what I was thinking. And I don't know how many times I've wished that I could put Chrome OS on some older devices to give them a second life. And this pretty much allowed me to do so. Um, I have a little idea pad that is like two gigs of RAM. I, I mean, it is just this horrible, horrible thing that made my daughter hate computers. And I was like, all right, let me try it out on this. And it brought life to this device. Like, I've been using this computer that I hated and wanted to take a sledgehammer to for the last week. And it's been completely usable. It's had everything that I needed just to click away. So, I don't know. I feel like I'm fangirling at this point. Well, and I would say that by default, it comes with a lot of Chrome apps like Twitter and WhatsApp that are definitely Chrome under the hood, but they show up as almost as if they're native applications. Yeah, well, they're just web apps. But you said Chrome there. This is a Linux distro that ships with Chrome by default, not Chromium. And that is unusual in of itself. But that kind of ties in with the fact that it's very easy to use. Most people use Chrome. That is just a fact. Look at the stats. And so they've made an operating system that instead of having to jump through a couple of hoops to get Chrome working, and that depends on the distro on Ubuntu, it's pretty straightforward, and similarly on Fedora or whatever. But they've just given it to you right there. But if you actually want to use a free and open source browser like Firefox, then you actually do have to jump through some hoops. And I'm afraid I couldn't get Firefox working the way they wanted me to, but I won in the end. I did get it working. You know, I couldn't get it installed either. I went to the software store and I clicked on Firefox and I clicked install and it toiled away for, what, like 10 minutes? And then yeah. it finally said, error, error, I can't install. Um, 
And it turned out it was an OS tree issue where OS tree just couldn't manage to merge that Im- into the image. It just wouldn't do it. So how'd you get it installed then? You just go to firefox.com, download the tarball, extract it, and run the binary in it. <laughs> That's cheating. <laughs> it is cheating, but, you know, I had to get it working somehow. L, you generally use Firefox, right? So didn't you miss it? Okay, so this is really embarrassing, but I had so much fun playing with the applications that were on there that I didn't even think about configuring it to my usual standards. Huh. Well, it's kind of... Uh, a positive thing, right? That means that you, you weren't looking to tinker with it. You were just looking to get on with what you wanted to get on with. And that's what an operating system should be about. There was just so much there to play with. You know, like there was, um, hey, do you want to learn HTML5? Click here and follow this tutorial, which I did. And do you want to learn CSS? Wikipedia, here's a bunch of articles. Do you want to learn about dinosaurs? It was strange because it almost seemed like it was a kid-friendly OS because of that. But then on the other side of it, it had like scientific apps and it just, it covers so much that I think I spent a majority of my time just playing through the app store and finding new things to use. It let me actually enjoy using the computer instead of worrying about how I was going to get things running on a computer, which is kind of new ground for me. One thing that I noticed and was a little disappointed by is that telemetry is on by default and it's not obvious on how to disable it. And telemetry, for those who don't know, is essentially taking metrics about how you use the computer and shipping that back up to the operating system creator. Now, to actually disable telemetry in this OS, you have to go into the settings, down to the privacy tab, and then disable it there. I'm not one who says that telemetry should be off by default in all circumstances, but it would be nice if that were in the first run wizard, just to let people know, hey, we are shipping some of your information back up to the home base. You know, we're talking a little bit about security concerns. When I was trying to figure out really how to download Endless OS, I was looking through the site and I found information about Pagey. And I'm going, what's this? And it seems that it's a mechanism that if you buy one of their computers and you miss a payment, they can basically brick your computer. They can lock it so that you don't have access to it. So I start reading about it, and it says it's built into the endless OS. So I'm thinking, okay, so I can download this. What is somebody, you know, what's to stop somebody from just breaking my device out of I don't know, just being malicious. So I got really hesitant about installing cryptoware on purpose on a computer, which is how I ended up installing Endless OS on that idea pad. So that's something that does make me a little uncomfortable. Is that feature only in computers that come pre-installed with it, or is it in this image that we've downloaded and installed? I don't know. The only information I could get off the website is that it's built into Endless OS. So it doesn't state that it's part of the hardware. It states it's part of the operating system. That does seem a bit sketchy, and you do wonder if you can boot into another Linux and just, you know, wipe it or just reinstall it if they do that. So the website says that they've developed proprietary technology to defend around workarounds such as OS reflashing, internal clock tampering, and hard drive removal and wiping. Ah, the only way I can think that they could accomplish something like that is doing something weird with the BIOS. Mm, Well, that's not very good then, is it? Um, I don't think I would be buying a device from them, but... um, As long as it's not in this image that you can download yourself, then I don't see any reason why you wouldn't use that. Although, 
I don't know, do you really want to use something that's made by a company that has those kind of practices? Well, to be fair, I think I actually would recommend this for somebody like, uh, you know, my grandmother or somebody else who's not necessarily tech savvy, but needs something that just does web browsing, email, calendar, all web-based applications. I think this is perfect for somebody like that. And I'd probably be willing to buy a cheap computer and throw this on there. I would still be pretty wary about buying it from somebody who has the keys to the actual computer itself. But I don't see any reason not to use the operating system. I think definitely it's going to be something that sticks around at my house. One of the things that I loved is so I go in, you create your account, and that kind of becomes your administrative user. You can download apps with it and everything. But if you log out, there is kind of a guest account that you can log in. You don't have to have a password to log in to use it. You have access to all applications that have been installed, but you can't add anything else to the box. So it's something that I felt very comfortable just handing to my kids to be able to use. And I'm like, hey, there's Minecraft already installed in it. Go learn some HTML. Like It just is a very kind of friendly computer that you can leave around and not worry too much about something happening. Famous last words there, I know. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to check in and see if you've still got it installed in a couple of weeks. Um, all right, well, before we get out of here, let's find out what we're going to be talking about next time on Distro Hoppers. So let's go to distrowatch.com and click the random distribution button. Okay, PC Linux OS. Ah, yes. Now, have I used this? I don't know. I've certainly heard of it. Um, it is a user-friendly Linux distribution with out-of-the-box support for many popular graphics and sound cards and other devices, blah, blah, blah. Um, independent KDE Plasma or Mate desktops. So pretty solid choices there. Uh, and yeah, last release seems to have been fairly recently. So uh, this should be a good one. Have you two heard of this? I certainly have. It's been around for forever. I'm sorry, it almost sounded like you said PC Linux, which is... <laughs> no, as in PC, personal computer Linux OS. Oh, okay. Well, I'm willing to give it a try. <laughs> well, we'll be talking about that on the next episode. So go to choosethenix.show slash subscribe for the ways to get all the future episodes and go to choosethenix.show slash contact for ways to get in touch with us. And you can definitely find us on Twitter. I'm at L underscore O underscore punk at LOPunk. I'm at Drew of Doom. And I'm at Joe Ressington. We'll be back in two weeks with more exciting discoveries. Bye.